Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In this lecture, delivered on May 7, 2018, as part of the Works in Progress series at the National Gallery of Art, Anna Vick focuses on the early work of painter and ceramicist Maruka Mayo, 1902-1995. Created within the context of the so-called Vallecas School, Mayo's painting series, Cloacas y Campanarios, circa 1929-1932, meaning sewers and belfries, and other early works picture the detritus found in Madrid's outskirts and present Mayo's critique of the academic conventions of Spanish landscape painting. Vick considers Mayo's interrogation of art world norms while also investigating the artist's contemplation of her place within Spain's artistic panorama following her prolonged exile to Argentina, 1936-1961, as a result of the Spanish Civil War. Parishioners and ecclesiastics of the village of Arevalo were surprised one day in 1933 when into the church rode a young woman on her bicycle. Apparently, she had taken a wrong turn, and as the cathedral door was wide open, she had no choice but to float down the nave until stopping, just in time at the altar. Once there, the woman promptly turned her bicycle around and rode out as swiftly as she had ridden in, leaving bewildered glances in her wake. This story is one recounted by the painter Maruja Mayo, who apparently experienced the event during her tenure as an art professor in the province of Avila. The account points to several factors that demonstrate Maruja Mayo's involvement with a nascent Spanish modernity. First, she was riding a bicycle, a sporty activity that went part and parcel with a newly popular athletic culture. And second, she took the bicycle into a sacred space, one associated with clearly defined behavioral norms that did not so much as allow women to enter with uncovered heads, let alone on bicycles. Europeans familiar with Dadaist transgressions would surely have applauded the incident. Mayo was born in Viveiro in the Galician province of Lugo in 1902, and she matriculated at the San Fernando Fine Arts Academy in Madrid in 1922. As a student, Mayo lived in the so-called Residencia de Señoritas, the women's residence that served as a counterpart to the men's, the so-called Residencia de Estudiantes, an innovative educational institution modeled on an Oxbridge-style college. Mayo thrived there and had many friends, including Salvador Dali, Federico García Lorca, and Luis Buñuel. Together, Mayo and her cohorts often walked through the city without wearing hats. From this transgression comes the term sin sombrerismo, which translates roughly to without a hatism. Amusing anecdotes from Mayo's days as an art student in Madrid abound, among them her victorious win at a blasphemy competition. And here's a photograph of her with Dali, and Dali also included uh, her in two of his early watercolors. So for example, you can see her here and here. Uh, this is a depiction of their nightly walks through Madrid, and she's also featured in this watercolor. Maruja Mayo's career began with an unprecedented exhibition in 1928, hosted by the Spanish philosopher José Ortega y Gasset at the offices of his journal, La Revista de Occidente. Here, Mayo exhibited her series of four verbenas, or popular festivals, and her estampas, or print series. 
The show was a critical success and it launched the start of a promising career. And I also want to note that in addition to being a visual artist, uh, Mayo also uh, did do some writing. Uh, this book, for example, was published in 1939 and in included some essays that she um, had written uh, as uh, presentations and lectures in the following, in the previous 15 years. So Mayu completed three major series during the first decade of her career, carried out while she was still in Spain. And I should note that in 1936, she, at the start of the Spanish Civil War, she went into exile in Argentina, and she remained in South America until 1961. So when she returned to Spain, uh, her legacy had all but disappeared, and that's something that I'll also discuss a little bit at the end of the presentation. So back to her early series that she completed um, in the first decade of her career. So these are the aforementioned verbenas, the festivals, notable, I argue, for their inclusion of a vast array of objects associated with popular traditions. In the Estampa series, Mayo continues to focus on material culture. However, in this case, the things that she pictures are commercial goods for sale in sophisticated shops. The color palette of these works is much more limited, cinematic in fact, and evokes a more somber mood than the aforementioned series. Finally, uh, cloacas y campanarios, sewers and belfries, which I will discuss today, feature a much more controlled array of objects. Indeed, it is the absence of objects that is notable in these works, landscape paintings that could be termed anti-landscapes. Maruja Mayo premiered these paintings in 1932 at the influential Galerie Pierre in Paris. The paintings are characterized by their earthy theme, muted color palette, and repeating motifs that include skeletons, footprints, discarded fabric, and excrement. There are no outright references to the city in the Estampa series. And critics in both France and Spain praised the works and their creator, and they were quick to draw connections between Mayo's painting and the Spanish realist tradition that spanned centuries. So this limited color palette and also the memento mori theme is uh, something that we can associate with um, uh, painters of the golden age and, and beyond. So some of the paintings in the series, which so discarded things, remnants of a frog, and uh, scare fish rather than a scarecrow. Scholarship on Mayo and the sewers and belfries has also discussed her work in terms of surrealism. However, the links between the Paris-based movement and the artist are tenuous at best. While Mayo's imagery may have appealed to the surrealist aesthetic, the designation seems to have come about as a result of critics calling her a surrealist in the 1970s to facilitate the reevaluation and recuperation of her work. Mayo showed little interest in surrealist methods, psychic automatism, a chief among them, and was in fact deeply interested in geometry and order and nature. And I also want to point out that this painting was initially purchased by André Breton in 1932 from the Galerie Pierre, and that also uh, prompted uh, this discussion of her in terms of surrealism. Uh, but it's since um, been sold to another collection. So Mayo's interest in nature leads to a third major point of entry that critics have taken into the series, discussing the composition in terms of the activity surrounding the Escuela de Vallecas, 
or the Valleca School. This loose collective formed around the artists Benjamin Palencia and Alberto Sanchez. Between 1929 and 1931, these artists frequently traveled to the village outside of Madrid, taking the scrubby nature that they observed there as inspiration for their sculptures and their paintings. And here I want to point out that Mayos, although they were um, in conversation with one another and going to the same place, uh, Mayo's outlook is very different from that of uh, the committed communist Alberto Sanchez, who looked to nature and uh, saw um, a, a path forward um, for the people of Spain, whereas Mayo is looking in the opposite direction. Considering the sewers and belfries within the Vallecas framework places the paintings within a specific context, that of the village of Vallecas and the artists who went there, and of course ties the works to the genre of landscape painting. Indeed, it is when considering how the landscape genre was constructed in Madrid during the late 19th and early 20th centuries that the viewer may recognize how Mayo subverts convention to perform a cagey political critique of nationalism while promoting her singular vision and at the same time constructing an extravagant artistic persona which is visible in a series of portraits that Mayo would complete around the same time and which I'll discuss presently. Uh, first, we'll take a little detour and think about the development of Spanish landscape painting in the 19th century. So landscape as a genre was not <clears throat> widely discussed nor highly valued in Spain until the second half of the 19th century. <clears throat> when a professorship in landscape was instated in 1844 by royal decree at the San Fernando Fine Arts Academy, the decree praised the genre not only for its utility as decoration, but for its use in scientific journeys and nature studies. Landscape allowed for a new way of knowing and relating to the reality of the country. And the respected painter Aureliano Beruete was the foremost promoter of this new concept of landscape. Beruete was also a founding member of the Institución Libre de Enseñanza, or the Free Educational Institution. The institution was founded in 1876, and it was a cultural enterprise that emerged out of a nationalist project dedicated to developing and employing modern pedagogical methods to illuminate the essential qualities of the Spanish nation and to regenerate it. Chief among the positivist tactics promoted at the Institute was the excursion, an activity inseparable from the practice of landscape painting. Beruete contributed to a specific conception of the Spanish nation, which considered Castilla, so the area surrounding Madrid, as its center, as opposed to Barcelona or other areas of uh, the Iberian Peninsula. His emblematic view of Madrid uh, from the meadow of San Isidro is an impressionistic painting that references the work of another Spanish artist, namely Goya. And so both of these paintings um, are uh, painted from more or less the same vantage point, and both picture the major seats of culture and power of Madrid, of Castilian culture. So you have the Royal Palace, the main plaza, and the um, Cathedral of St. Fran Francis. 
So Maruja Mayo called her series sewers and belfries, but there's not a belfry in sight. She refers to a lofty architectural structure that one ex expects to find in a cityscape and pairs it with a subterranean system that has less appealing associations. One cannot deny that like Beruete, Mayo is depicting an invented version of Madrid's surrounding landscapes, and her vision, like Beruete's, is inherently political. Mayo, having had a traditional artistic education guided in part by the principles of the free educational institution, was familiar with the type of nationalist myth promoted by the landscape painting of Beruete and his artistic descendants, who were Mayo's professors. Mayo's pictures are still representative of Spain and Castilla, but they reject the notion of Castilla as a seat of high culture and political power. Instead of directing her gaze to the Belfry's heights, she dove into the trash heaps normally hidden from sight, thus enacting an institutional critique, a hallmark of avant-garde artistic practice. And here I'm including um, the cover of the of a famous literary journal, which features a poem dedicated to Maruja Mayo by uh, Rafael Alberti. The title of the poem is The First Ascension of Maruja Mayo to the Subsoil, and it describes uh, with glee her uh, ascension through various layers of earth and excrement, and it's quite disgusting. Uh, it's um, illustrated by two of her works. Uh, this uh, painting on the bottom is sadly lost. And another um, interesting item to note is that just a few months later, in the same year, on the cover of the same journal, there was an article um, published by Juan Ramon Jimenez. Uh, Juan Ramon Jimenez is a generation older than Maruja Mayo and Alberti, and uh, he's Spain's Nobel, uh, won a Nobel Prize for Literature. And in that article, he lambasted Mayo, Alberti, and Dali for their celebration of this trash aesthetic. So he felt that artists, um, the younger generation of artists should um, have a kind of loftier um, uh, goals um, and explorations in mind in pursuit of their art. Mayo's cave of fossils, like the paintings of the Verbena series, is a large-scale picture, but its subject matter is anything but festive. No flags wave in the air, just a rag attached to a stick jutting out of a broken jug. Instead of revelers, human remains hover across a dingy terrain. Strewn among the bones of the painting's foreground are discarded horseshoes, an impaled frog, errant mushrooms, and a couple of lizards. In writing about these paintings for the first time in 1937, Mayo re remarked that she was impressed with nature's facility for eliminating, eliminating the trash produced by humanity and by the transitory nature of things. Indeed, the chaotic scene at hand seems to demonstrate the very process by which nature eventually conquers all. Mayo embarked upon this exploration and interpretation of the rough terrain surrounding Madrid with enthusiasm and confidence as exemplified through her writing, the paintings themselves, and a series of photographs that she staged uh, and were taken around the same time. These were taken by her brother Justo between 1928 and 1930, and they show Mayo taking on a curious persona while inhabiting a landscape similar to the ones depicted in the Sewers and Belfries series. In one photograph, 
published in at least two, uh, in at least three uh, different Madrid newspapers in the fall of 1933, Mayo looks out from the small opening on the face of a railroad switchman's shack. In addition to her made-up visage, the doors decorated with animal skulls, a long cotton thistle, chalk drawings of a cross and a guitar, and writing in chalk featuring Mayo's name, España, and here it says Sotanas y, which means cassocks and ellipsis. So that, that kind of brings to mind um, Spanish religiosity, the skulls function as a memento mori, but also bring us into the world of the paintings. And uh, I think also kind of a curious detail is this um, guitar, which uses the spare language of uh, the Cubist aesthetic. Here she's pictured in a barrel. And another uh, important element of these photographs is that although she's recreating the landscapes associated with Vallecas, so this village uh, southwest of Madrid, uh, these photographs were made in Tercerilla, which is a town in the northeast of Madrid, much further away, about 60 kilometers, and where wealthy people from Madrid go to spend the summer in order to enjoy a cooler atmosphere. And um, because the inhabitants there are wealthier, it, um, it makes sense, it follows that they produce more garbage because they have more deliveries happening. So for instance, the barrels and crates that she's standing in are perhaps discarded um, from having brought some nice wares to the, the people of Tercedilla. Most of these are signed. And I have this comparison here because you can see how her uh, stocking is falling into the shoe is really a direct uh, kind of quotation of the uh, scarecrows that she features in, in a number of her paintings. The dark visions of Spain depicted in the photographs and in the paintings flow together seamlessly, allowing Mayo to claim authorship over this new way of inventing and depicting landscape, one that was at once indebted to and divorced from tradition. And by emphasizing through the photographs the constructed nature of the paintings of the Sewers and Belfry series, Maya was able to promote her artistic persona and her artwork while calling into question the veracity of the landscape genre as a whole. So now I'm going to segue from her Sewers and Belfries to a, dis a short discussion of Maya's uh, artistic legacy um, as described in her own archive. And I have this painting here because it features the famous tertulia of this Café del Pombo, uh, which was a, a literary salon that was <clears throat> presided over by Ramón Gómez Lacernao. <clears throat> Ramón, in 1942, published this uh, book um, in Argentina. Both Mayo <clears throat> and Ramón were in exile in Buenos Aires in the 1940s. And this book is a key text in um, the literature on Mayo. All subsequent literature um, quotes it. And Mayo herself was, um, is evidenced to have revisited this text. So this is a photocopy from the book that I just showed you of the essay by Ramon that um, starts out this book. So she has um, a very uh, systematic way of annotating the text. So plus, 
with the red outline <laughs> probably refers to the adjective plástico, and this uh, plástico describes um, a phrase or an idea that emphasizes um, certain mental images. So for example, she underlines in red that Maruja Mayo is a gift of May with the confusing um, spelling because Mayo uh, and Mayo, the, her name and the month of May sound very similar. Then Medi, Medio environment, the place, the, the elements of the essay that she underlines in green are all places, Canary Islands, Verbenas, my favorite uh, sepulchers of garbage. He's there describing her sewers and belfry series. And I should note so that this is dated 1980. Uh, Maruja Mayo returned from exile. She returned to Madrid in 1961 and uh, found that she was completely unknown. So the legacy of the Spanish avant-garde kind of ceased um, to, to be alive in the Spanish cultural imagination after the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War. And in the 1940s and 50s, uh, Fran the Francoist government was uh, really promoting contemporary art, uh, mainly abstract, abstract painters. So there was not much discussion at the time in the 1960s and 70s of the Spanish avant-garde. And the, those figures uh, who were most well-known were people like Dali who had remained in the country. So what I'm interested in is how Mayo is revisiting her legacy and then um, using this system of annotations to um, write notes on pieces of toilet paper. And uh, so here I think there's a, a direct link between her uh, decision to write on this disposable material and the paintings of the sewers and belfries that she was making in the um, in the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s. So you can see that she glued, gra oops, glued graph paper to the edges of the toilet paper in order to increase its structural integrity. It's obviously that it's a material that's difficult to write on, and so she had to take great care and write with a light touch. And clearly what she was copying was of importance to her, but she's writing on a disposable material. So I think there's this clear link between this toilet paper and the excrement that she pictures in the um, Sewers and Belfry series. Here, for example, she's um, writing a number of terms that Ramon uses in his essay and um, writing synonyms or descriptions of what those mean. So Ramon's term, uh, burning carrion, she uh, writes uh, spoiled meat. This is a, a longer transcription from the essay. In addition to the notes on toilet paper, uh, Mayo also has notes on um, normal paper and notebooks. And this one um, caught my attention because here she's writing down cold, egocentric, ma always mounting scandal, scandal breadbasket. So who does this bring to mind? None other than Salvador Dali, who's one of the most famous artists associated with the Spanish avant-garde and who was Mayo's close friend at one point. Uh, and here Dali is named. 
So I was wondering, uh, so following LF, so I went to the um, OpenStax in a research library in Madrid, and I pulled down all of the books by Enrique Lafuente Ferrari, a Spanish art historian. And sure enough, in his 1962 book of essays, he includes uh, an essay on Dali that Mayo uh, copied, this out, copied this from. So that book would have been uh, published around the same time that Mayo returned to Spain. Here uh, is a catalog from 1936. Uh, this exhibition ended just about one month before Mayo left Spain. And you can see that she's added more entries to the bibliography. So she's very conscious about how uh, her work was received when it, was, when it came out. And um, these kind of notes are all happening in the much decades later, it's 1970s and 1980s. Finally, I want to show this collage, which first of all um, does bring to mind the office of Ramon, and this is a famous photograph that um, uh, members of the cultural elite in Spain would have been familiar with, and how Mayo positions herself in this collage next to these luminaries of uh, early 20th century, um, cultural world. So for example, here's Ramon, here's Andre Breton, here's Picasso, who probably she didn't know, but he adds a kind of seriousness uh, to this collage. Here she is with Pablo Neruda. This is uh, Jose Ortega Gasset. Here, um, this is um, cut out from the title of his journal, the Revista de Occidente. She includes this photograph that we saw earlier. Here's Lorca. So she's... Um, kind of uh, very much uh, interested in uh, how she fits into this, um, the canon of the historical avant-garde, which is only being written in the 1970s. This uh, gentleman is uh, Kike Rivas, who was associated with um, an art gallery in Madrid that mounted two exhibitions in 1975 and 1979 about the historical avant-garde in Spain. And he is a figure who is really responsible for the um, bringing Maruja Mayo's uh, legacy back into the cultural conversation. So I just want to end by thinking about uh, Mayo's copying her career highlights onto toilet paper, and by doing so, how she avoided placing the historical avant-garde on too high of a pedestal, though at the same time, she de definitely wants to be part of it. Her impulse to consider her legacy in terms of waste is a direct allusion to her earlier series, The Sewers and Belfries. And indeed, her own archive channeled the ethos of her prior artistic preoccupations. Such a move was fully consistent with the conception of Spanish modernity that Mayo held, wherein she regarded elements of Spanish culture, both high and low, with fascination and disgust. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 